you'll allow me just a moment of, uh, I don't know, introspection. Um, in two weeks, so on the first Sunday of January, um, I will have completed nine years as the pastor of Logansville Church and will start my 10th year. And during these past nine years, we've worked our way through several books of the Bible together. Um, I've preached verse by verse through the books of Ruth, Philemon, Mark, Obadiah, James, Acts, Ecclesiastes, several of the Psalms, including six of the Psalms of Lament. I've also preached through several topical, or I like to call them uh, doctrinal series. And so we looked at the ordinary means of grace. We looked at the glory of Christ, church membership and leadership, the importance of the Reformation, the doctrines of grace, the five solas of the Reformation, as well as the importance of assembled biblical worship. Early on in my ministry here at Logansville Church, um, I read an article by Professor David Murray from the Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary in Grand Rapids. It's a seminary where Joel Beakey is the president. Some of you are familiar with his work. And Dr. Murray, David Murray, um, he said that if, if he were to do it all over again, preaching in a new church, he said he would start with one of the Gospels. And he said that he would do that in order to grab people's attention and focus them on the life, ministry, death, resurrection, the great commission of Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior. So at that time, several years ago, um, I was thinking about that and thinking about Logansville Church, where we have been, where we are, and where we need to go. And as I was learning at that time who we were as a people, trying to understand where we were spiritually, where Logansville Church was, I came to the conclusion that I thought Dr. Murray was right, and I, at least me, I needed to spend some time in the Gospels. I needed to spend some time with Jesus, and we as a church needed to be sure that we were with Christ. I felt as though we needed to spend a significant amount of time being absorbed with the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so to be completely honest with you, in those days, it was the end of 2012, I picked the gospel according to Mark because it's the shortest. Then for the last few years, we have gone back to Jesus again. And we have focused this time um, on his life and his teachings in John's gospel. In fact, we began our study of the gospel according to John on Sunday, August 20th, 2017. If you're curious, this is the 117th sermon from the gospel according to John. And again, in all candor, while the gospel according to Mark was the shortest and, and had the fastest pace as we studied through that, the gospel according to John has been, at least for me, the most challenging. So as I reflected on this series this week, this book that we have worked through, the years that we have put into it, I went back and I looked at the, the sermon manuscript of that very first sermon from August 20th, 2017. And I ended that sermon, I finished that sermon with this. I asked this question, why study John? What is here for us? This was the answer I gave in August 20th, 2017. 
um, as we begin our study. I said, first and foremost, I want us to study the gospel according to John so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. But see, whereas Mark answers the question, who is this man and why must he die? John's aim is somewhat bigger than that. It still aims to answer the question, who is this man? It still proclaims the truth along with the others that he is the son, the son of God. But John's gospel also shows us or really emphasizes who Jesus is in relation to his father. It shows us his obedience and his dependence upon and submission to God the Father, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it was this great love that saved us and now controls us. That's how we started the very first sermon. That's how we began this study. And so we end this study, or maybe I should say John ends this gospel with an ongoing gospel call, an ongoing call to discipleship. Jesus says, follow me. And then he says again, you, follow me. This is a command. This is an imperative. But it follows the indicatives, the indications, the statements all through John's gospel of what Jesus has done for his own people. Because Jesus rose, died on the cross and, and rose again. And because of that, we are able to follow him. And if that's true, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose again, if that's true, why wouldn't you follow him? Let's read these last few verses of John's gospel. It's John chapter 21. I'm going to read verses 18 through 25, bringing us to the end of the gospel according to John. John 21, 18, Jesus is saying to Peter, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who had also had leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is his will that he, if it is my will that he will remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Let's pray one more time. Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear today. Help us to understand as you speak to us through your word. Guide us by your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we go any further into the passage, I want to make this note, okay? Sometimes when we read this, these verses, um, 
we sometimes can read them with a little bit of sarcasm or chastising in Jesus' voice, especially in verse 22, and then he repeats it later in, um, what is it, verse 23. We might be forgiven for seeing this as sort of sarcastic and correcting or chastising. Um, If we were to uh, look at all of chapter 21, John chapter 21, as, as sort of one long rebuke of Peter, and and we all know that Peter often needed rebuking, but we really should see this chapter as Jesus lovingly restoring Peter to his ministry as an apostle, to his ministry as he will call himself an elder, a pastor, as a shepherd of the flock of God as he is charged here even in the previous verses. So we should see this entire chapter, we should read this with an attitude of restoration. I don't think Jesus is snapping at Peter. He's saying, hey, keep your eyes on me. Peter, Peter, keep your eyes on me. Keep your hand to the plow. But this text of scripture isn't just about Peter. In fact, it's really also, maybe even more so, about the other disciple the disciple whom Jesus loved. This section is about John as well. So I believe, that, I believe that Peter is actually concerned about John. I think that's why he turns and says, well, what about him? Um, I think he's concerned about him. Not long after the events of these verses, Peter and John, these two, will be called before the Sanhedrin. They will be called before the Jewish high court and many of the same men who just in chapter 20 demanded Jesus' crucifixion. Peter and John will stand before the same men from whom they ran before. And they proclaimed this. Let me read a bit from Acts chapter 4. It says this, rulers of the people and elders. This is Peter and John proclaiming. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That took great courage for Peter and John to say those words to the same men who were yelling out, crucify him crucify him probably just a few weeks earlier and then the very next verse in acts chapter 4 says this now when they that is the sanhedrin saw the boldness of peter and john they perceived that they were uneducated common men they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with jesus they recognized that they had been with jesus These events that we're reading about here in John chapter 21, both for Peter and for John, they are designed by Jesus to prepare them for the boldness that they're going to soon need to proclaim the gospel, even to the very men who crucified their Messiah, their Christ. 
Do you remember when he had said not long before this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For anyone or whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Our friend um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he said this in his book, uh, The Cost of Discipleship. Remember, Bonhoeffer was put to death by the Nazis. He said, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Follow me, Jesus says. Well, in Matthew chapter 16, uh, right before Jesus called his disciples to take up their cross and follow him, a couple of amazing things happened. Peter, the same Peter, he confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus responds to that confession with a blessing and a promise. And that promise is about to, to begin to come to pass. That promise is about to start. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so as we get to the end of John chapter 21, that promise, I will build my church, is about to begin. Jesus is about to begin building his church. He has now risen. He has preached peace to them. He has empowered them with the Holy Spirit. He has sent them with the good news. And in order for the church to be built in his way and for his glory, Jesus restores Peter to ministry by calling him to feed and tend and feed his sheep, even to the point of death. And in the midst of this, in the midst of, as we see this begin to unfold, there are a couple of things that John wants to get across to us, his readers. First, John, the Apostle John needs to refute a rumor that the brethren seem to have believed, Christians, it seems to be spreading throughout churches, and he also needs to establish his credentials, his authority at one final time. He needs to say, I was there. I'm an eyewitness to these things. I saw these things. But even so, through it all, through this, even these final couple paragraphs, he's continuing to deflect attention off of himself and onto his Savior, the Word made flesh. He's continuing to focus our attention on Jesus Christ. And so in this passage, we can see four promises of Christ that are trustworthy and true. Four promises that we can know for, for certain. And because these are true, because these promises are true, we can rest and rejoice and have assurance. We can rest and rejoice and have assurance no matter what's happening in the world. Here's the first promise. It is this. Jesus is the Savior 
who has divine foreknowledge over our lives. Jesus is the Savior who has divine foreknowledge over our lives. Look at verses 18 and 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And John explains in verse 19, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after this, saying this to, um, after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Now we already mentioned these verses last week, but I wanted to stress this point today. Because as the year 2020 comes to a close, there is no indication that the year 2021 is going to be any less stressful, is there? Um, the year, this year, we have seen some previously unfathomable events take place, have we not? We have seen some things happen this year that we, if you told us one year ago this is what 2020 is going to be like, none of us would have believed it. We all know what those things are, I don't need to go into it. The year 2021 marks the 20th anniversary of 9-11, which was probably the biggest, most nationally painful event of my lifetime. But we've also seen some unexpected deaths. We've seen some other tragedies that have hit some of us closer to home even this year. So what will next year bring? Who knows? But what we do know is this. Jesus is the Savior who has divine foreknowledge over our lives. Now, now that term divine foreknowledge that's not strong enough. That's not a strong enough term, right? It isn't just that Jesus knows what's going to happen. He's actually ordained all that will take place. But in this passage, it's very clear that Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen, both to Peter and to John. Specifically, he knows how they will die. And yet, this is not a new theological development that came with the incarnation, right? This isn't new to God, that all of a sudden, he has this power to know the future, even to know how someone will die. This has always been true of God. So turn in your Bibles back to Psalm 139. Psalm 139 O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word was on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. 
For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God, and we understand this to mean our triune God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. God ordains our days, each of our days. That's why I highlighted verse 16 there. Listen again. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. That means he knows the days in 2021 and two and three Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In the case of Peter, church history tells us um, that he was put to death, probably crucified, possibly upside down, um, during the time of Nero's persecution of Christians. History tells us that this, this likely happened around the year A.D. 64, 64 A.D. What this means is that Peter had been executed, most likely, pretty much everybody believes this, scholars, Peter was executed before John wrote this gospel. So we can read this in two different ways. In fact, I think we should read this a couple of different ways. First, we should see that Jesus is reassuring Peter of the great truth that he had promised. Even back in John 16, 33, when he, when he said this to them, he, he said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He is trying to reassure Peter of these things. Peter is facing, he would be facing here very soon, tribulation. But John wrote this down after Peter died because Jesus is assuring us of the same thing that he sees, that he knows, that our days have been written before there are even breath in our lungs. He knows what's in store for us this next year, and so we too should find great assurance. There's an old hymn um, Whatever God ordains is right. We should find great assurance in that. But it's clear that at the same time, this is true for John as well. Again, history tells us that John will be the only apostle to not die a martyr's death, and yet he will be harshly persecuted. This is the root of the rumor that had developed among the brethren that John wanted to correct here that we can see um, in verse 23. 
Peter, as Peter inquired about John's fate in verse 21, Jesus' response to Peter was actually twisted later by the church. Now remember, John is writing this decades after the events took place, decades after this conversation. In fact, by the time John writes this down, he's probably the old elder of the church of Ephesus. And so he's correcting a what we have to call a superstition that seems to have developed in the churches where some believed that John wouldn't die. In fact, it's likely that all of the other apostles had died by this time. John is the last one as he's writing his gospel. And there are some in the churches around that said, this guy's never going to die. Jesus even predicted that he would never die. And John is just simply saying here, no, Jesus never said that. And the only point I want to make on this is that it doesn't take long for us, churches in general, Christians in particular, it doesn't take long for us to twist God's word. It doesn't take long for urban legends or rumors to become the things that we believe. Um, We're going to see more of this when we get into 1 Corinthians. Let's leave it there. Regardless, um, the point is that Jesus is the Savior who has divine foreknowledge over our lives and even our deaths. I'm convinced that both Peter and John found great comfort and assurance in this. We can see this even by their incredible bravery in Acts, which probably took place weeks after this. I think they found assurance in Jesus' words here, and we should as well. He's already written the days that he has formed for us, the days that have not yet come. And so we should find great comfort in this, also this second promise that is trustworthy and true, and that is this, that Jesus is the Savior who goes before us. Jesus is the Savior who goes before us. Look at those two or three words at the end of verse 19 and then again at the end of verse 22, the last, verses, last words of those two verses, 19 and 22. Follow me. Verse 22, you follow me. This is the gospel call. It is, it is one that the disciples should be very familiar with because this is what Jesus has been saying to them from the very beginning. Back in chapter 1, in verse 43, <coughs> excuse me, in John 1, 43, we read this, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. <coughs> Sorry. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, he says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me. And they did follow him, even when others turned back. Let me remind you of what happened following a particularly hard teaching of Jesus's, one that was very difficult for people to understand. In John chapter 6, verses 66 to 69, it says this, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And even now, even now that they have met him in Galilee like he had asked them to, they continued to follow him. 
But remember what he said in John 14, the first several verses of John 14. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. But this final time here in John 21, when Jesus says, you follow me, could it be? Could it be that he was saying to Peter, keep your eyes on me. Don't turn around. Look at verse 21 again, or 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him, the one who had also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Don't turn around. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Never mind what other believers do. You keep your eyes on Jesus. I'm convinced that it's going to get harder for Christians in the coming, I don't know, days, weeks, years at least. It's going to get harder for Christians to follow Jesus. So no matter what other Christians do, you follow him. Keep your eyes on Jesus. We're seeing in our day, um, even in our own nation, many Christians and churches taking their eyes off of Jesus. And instead they are putting them on various political leaders, on causes or injustices, but we must not do that. Now, it is good and right to be involved in our political processes, but you follow him because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And here's the thing. Here's the cause of assurance and the cause of rejoicing in this. Following Jesus is not all doom and gloom. It's actually light and free. Do you understand that? Following Jesus isn't all doom and gloom. Listen to what he says. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Rest. This is still Jesus' call to us. Follow me. And so as we stand here at the end of a, a difficult year, with probably more trials and trouble on the horizon, we would do well to not lose focus, to not get distracted, to not look around, but rather keep our eyes on Jesus because he is the Savior who has promised to come again. 
Not only does he go before us and call us to follow him, he is the Savior who has promised to come again. This is the third and promise that is trustworthy and true and cause for rejoicing and, and assurance. Jesus is the Savior who has promised to come again. Do you see that Jesus says, until I come, in verse 22. John repeats him in verse 23. He's quoting him there again. So twice in this passage, it is clearly seen that Jesus is saying that he will come again until I come. If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Until I come. Focus on those three words. He's already promised that he would do this. In fact, he already promised when they were at the Last Supper. In John 14, verse 18, he makes one of the most incredible and important promises of the Bible. I think this is an incredible and important promise. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. We should find great assurance in the fact that Jesus has promised. He has promised to come again. He's not hinted at it. He's not alluded to maybe he'll return. He has promised to come again. He has promised, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. <coughs> Jesus Christ desires to be with his people. He even prayed in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. Just verse 24 says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. We may, um, we may not all agree on the details of Christ's return, right? We may not. But the important thing to remember, and the Advent season reminds us of this, Christmas reminds us of this, that the important thing to remember is that Christ has promised to come to be with his own people. He's promised that. Later, John is going to give a little bit further revelation about Christ's return. And in Revelation 21, verses 1 to 7, we read this. John writes, the same John, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers, will give this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And until that time, Jesus has left us with a sure witness to the gospel. 
This is the final promise that is trustworthy and true. Not only will Jesus return, not only has he promised to come again, but, and this also should bring us great assurance and rest, Jesus has left us with a sure witness to the gospel. Look at verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it who is going to betray you? Jump down to verse 24. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. John is telling us that he is an eyewitness of these things. But not only was he an eyewitness, he was physically, he was in close proximity, he was sitting with and even leaning on Jesus at the supper, but he was also emotionally or relationally close to Jesus. He was the one, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he's heard all of these things. He's heard them with his own ears. He saw these things with his own eyes as he followed Jesus. John is, for one final time in this book, he is establishing his credentials as an eyewitness, as one who is a sure witness of the gospel. His writing is trustworthy. Verse 24 is his sworn testimony. Just look at this again. Verse 24. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Who's the we? We know that his testimony is true. It could be his co elders at the church at Ephesus, it's possible. Elders who, by the way, knew uh, Paul, Acts chapter 17. Elders who, who knew Timothy, so they would be able to verify this is true. Could also be the disciples, the apostles, who obviously also were eyewitnesses of these things. And John is acting as their spokesman here. We saw this. We know that the things that John has written about are true. Probably, however, most of them have been martyred by the time he wrote these words. And so in reality, I think this is Christians. This is those who have seen and believed. Those who have seen his glory. Glories of the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. The word of God is true. And Jesus has left us this as a sure witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those who have seen and believed testify to these things and know that this testimony is true. Jesus really is the light of the world. He really is the good shepherd. He really is the door to the sheepfold. He really is the son of God. And this brings us to the final word in verse 25, which says this. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Do you know what this means? It means that Scripture is sufficient. It means that Scripture is sufficient. It means that we have what we need to know about salvation, to know about God. The very first line of the 1689 London Baptist Confession is this, the Holy Scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, and infallible standard of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. 
We have what we need in order to believe. We have what we need in order to be saved. But this also means that we will have an eternity to explore the riches and depths of God our Savior. Time itself is insufficient to contain him. He truly is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And joy upon joys, we will have all of eternity to behold him. That's what this means. All of eternity to explore who Jesus is, what he has done. All the books in all the world could not contain him, John says. We will have all of eternity to enjoy and behold our great God and Savior. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that we might all believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This Jesus whom we serve. Thus concludes our study of the gospel according to John. And so let's pray and then come to the table together to proclaim his death until he comes. Remember, he has promised, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. We're gonna proclaim his death as his own blood-bought people until he returns. Pray with me.